At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? I want to invite you to join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I don't know about you, but I have loved this study of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, for those of you who are just with us today, you are new the Woodside or your guest or visitor, we just want you to know you are welcome here. We thank God for you. Can we thank God for our guests today that are with us? And uh, we've been in the midst of a study, and this is what we do here at Woodside. We study through books of the Bible. We've been studying through a New Testament book, a letter called First Timothy, and uh, we've been taking up a question, church, why bother? Now, that question, I think, is a generational question. It's a question that many are asking, why bother with the church? Why bother with studying the Word? Why bother with gatherings like this? And as we've been studying through First Timothy, we've been answering that question by just listing out the number of benefits that come from the church. Now, last week, I got a chance to talk to you guys. Over the last, really, couple of weeks, I got a chance to talk to you about how one of the benefits is God places leaders in the church to care for the church. Well, this week, we're going to talk about how God has called us to care for one another. And I'm going to tell you, chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters, and it is one of the reasons why, if I was alive and living in Ephesus, when Paul wrote this letter, I would have been joining uh, the uh, church that Timothy was pastoring. I would have been joining Ephesus Bible Church, if you will, if I was alive during that time. And you're going to see why in just a moment. But let me first go back to last week. Last week was Super Bowl Sunday. We get a chance to host our family at our house. How many, by the show of hands, hosted a Super Bowl party or gathering? Come on, show me your hands. A few brave souls that are out there. Now, it is simple for me to say we hosted our family, but how many know that hosting a big group is nothing but complex. It is not simple at all. It is complicated. And our families, like many of yours, we got a big family. We had adults there. We had kids there. We got preteens there. We had people with food allergies. We had a senior. We had a vegan that was there. I'm a meditarian. That's what I bring to the party, right? So we had all of these things. We had people who like football and wanted a space to be able to watch the game. We had people who just like the fellowship and the family and don't care anything about football. So they weren't too interested in the game. We had to have a play area for the kids, and all of these things were going on. And what I love, I've been watching my wife and my mother-in-law for years prepare for these hosting events, and I love the attention to detail that they put into it. They made sure the vegan had the vegan food. They made sure that the food allergies were thought about. They made sure that us meditarians were fed. Now, the estimate is Americans ate 1.4 billion wings last week. I contributed. I did my part. I contributed my part to those wings, 
right? So they made sure everybody had what they needed. They made sure that the spaces were all laid out for kids, for adults, so that everyone who came through the door wouldn't have to be bogged down with those details, but everyone who came through the door felt welcomed and felt like family. Well, anytime you gather together a large group of people, it's complicated. But what Paul wants Timothy to know in the chapter we're about to look at today is the church is a family. And just like you prepare and you cater for all of those needs within the family, so it is for church. And today, as you gathered in, there was thought put into today. It wasn't randomly put together. There's a space for kids. There's a space for adults. There's spaces for people of different backgrounds and ages and all of those things. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And Paul wouldn't have it any other way. Because what we're going to see today is what we've been seeing throughout this letter. And that is one of the great benefits of the church is that we relate to one another as a family of God. And how many thank God for that? Amen? I'm going to talk to you about some of the values that shape our family and that shape how we treat one another. Let's look at Paul's writing to Timothy in verse number one, two, and three, verses one, two, and three. And here he lays out that we treat one another with honor. Look at what he says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. I love these words. Paul comes out the gate with a corrective. He comes out the gate with a commandment. He says to Timothy, listen, you're going to deal with a lot of ages. You're going to deal with both men and women. So let me tell you how you need to relate to them. Aren't you glad? I know I am that Paul did not say to Timothy, hey, relate to older men in the church Uh, like they are just leaders or based off of their office. No, he said, treat each older man like you would your father. Aren't you glad that he didn't say concerning women, hey, treat the older women like uh, guests you would tolerate at an event. It's not what he said. He He said, treat the older women like you would your mother. Younger men should feel like there's a brotherhood in the church. Younger women shouldn't feel preyed upon when they come here. They should feel like this is a place of purity. They should feel like sisters. He says, listen, don't rebuke. Now, this word, don't rebuke, it does not mean don't correct. It's not as if Paul is blind to the fact that we get off sometimes, that older people make mistakes, that younger people make mistakes, that those who've been walking with the Lord for a while make mistakes, that those who have title make mistakes. It's not that Paul is saying to Timothy, turn a blind eye to that and don't correct it. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying is don't rebuke. Now, that word rebuke in the original language means to strike with your words. It's meant to do violence with your words. How many of you heard that old children's nursery rhyme? Sticks and stones may what? But words will never. How many know that's a lie? Right? Sticks and stones hurt, but how many know words hurt too? The reality is, is that some of us, 
are still hurting from words, words that were said to us when we were children, words that maybe our parents spoke over us, words that hurt us deeply that a friend may have said or a spouse may have said, words that were spoken to us in anger maybe a decade ago and we still haven't been able to shake. Words hurt deep. And let's flip the coin. Some of you are word ninjas. Some of you are, uh, are able to be verbally um, violent. Verbal abuse is a real thing. And maybe you wouldn't see yourself that way. Maybe you wouldn't see yourself as a verbal ninja. But how many at a bare minimum would say, yeah, I'm that person in the house that's real blunt and straight to the point. Come on, show me your hands. All right, there we go, right? Uh, you don't need the soft stuff. You're pretty harsh. You're pretty direct. And don't nudge your neighbor. I'm talking to you, right? But the reality is, is this is a cautionary tale to us. Because without knowing it, sometimes we can cut, we can hurt, we can wound, and words are hard to shake. As a matter of fact, it's easy to recover from a broken bone than it is from a broken heart or crushed spirit. Moms and dads, we need to remember that when we're talking to our kids. And certainly the atmosphere that Paul wants Timothy to, to set for the church and the culture and the atmosphere that should be present in our church is not one where we strike one another with our words. But look at the word that he does use. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but do what? Encourage him. Now, the word that's used here in the original language that this uh, chapter would have been written in to the original audience is a Greek word. It is periklesis. Now, those of you who were with us when we were studying through John's gospel, John chapter 15, know that when Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit, he referred to him as the paraclete or the comforter. This word here means to comfort and to strengthen, to comfort and to strengthen. And it implies that we can't do it apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. So it's not that I don't see mistakes when they're made, but it is the case that when they are made, oftentimes it's because not that bad people are trying to be bad, but that weak people tend to behave out of character. Have you ever experienced what it's like to be overwhelmed in a moment and to behave out of character? Anybody ever experienced that? I know I've been there before. Have you ever experienced what it's like to uh, just be overwhelmed, exhausted, weak, and next thing you know, you're betraying your own ethics. You're betraying what you know to be true in Christ. And it's not because you've denied Jesus. It's not because you no longer love him. You are just overwhelmed. So what Paul says to Timothy is when you see that, let's assume, let's, let, let's assume the best about each other. And let's come alongside of one another and say, brother, sister, I want to encourage you that I believe we can do better. I, I want to build you up because I think that this is a weakness. Maybe you see it. Maybe you're blind to it. But I want to help you through it. I don't simply want to attack you or cast you to the side or treat you as an enemy because we are family. If you're an older man in here, I pray that you would be treated like a father with respect in a world that disregards older men 
and does not often respect them, I pray that here you'll feel respected. If you're an older woman that's here, I pray that you would be honored like a mom, that you would know in this place that you have so much worth and value. If you're a younger man, I pray that you will find much brotherhood here because you don't need to walk the journey alone. You need other brothers. If you're a woman in here, a young woman in here, I pray that you will feel this is a safe place where I can be treated like a sister. Notice the word he uses in verse number three that should mark our interactions with one another. It is honor. And I love this word. This word honor means to place high valuation on a person or a thing. You need to know you are highly valued when you come here. And this is why I say that I love this chapter. This is why I say that if I were alive, living in Ephesus where this was written, I would be joining Timothy's church because I think the whole world is looking for places like this. The whole world is looking for places where there is honor. The whole world is looking for places where there's not fractured relationships, where we don't have generationalism. You know what this eliminates? This eliminates all boomer jokes. This also eliminates millennial and Gen Z snarkiness. Amen? Every generation is welcomed to the table in the church because the church is a family. How many praise God for that? Now, the, the major section of this chapter is about to take a turn for the unexpected. I would think if Paul or me or any of us were training a young leader on how to run the church, that we would focus in on things like preaching and worship, doctrine and evangelism, that we would talk to this young leader, especially if we were limited in time, about the business affairs of the church and all of those things, and they have their place. But what Paul is about to talk about is equally as important in his eyes. It's as if Paul is saying, what good is it if we have great doctrine, great worship, great teaching, great leadership development, we get wonderful audits every year, fiscal responsibility, but we have not love. Notice who he said to honor more particularly. He said to honor widows. Now he's about to talk to us about how we care for one another with discernment. Look at what he says in verse number three, honor widows who are truly widows. Now by stating that, what he's talking about is in their culture, there were two types of widows. There were those who were honoring God and needed the help of the church and they were to be cared for. But then there were those who were not honoring God and he's about to explain the difference and describe what it meant to be a widow who, who uh, was truly seen as one who needed to be cared for by the church versus ones who were disregarding God. But all of this is shaped with the heart of love. Look at what he says in verse number four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Friends, I wish I could camp out here on that one verse for a month. Because what Paul lays out here is something that we have lost in our culture. Here's what he says. He says, listen, there is a middle generation. He talks about three generations in this one verse. There's an older generation, a younger generation, and the middle generation. He says, if you're a part of that middle generation, make sure you're caring for kids. 
Make sure you're caring for your grandchildren. Don't treat them as an afterthought. And I know this is a different cultural reality. So many of us are two-parent families that are working outside of the home, or some are even single head of household and working, and it's hard not to let our kids be latchkey kids like my generation was. But, but what Paul is saying is that kids should know the care of their parents. And not only should they know the care of their parents, but they should know the care of their grandparents. The second most important group of people in a child's life are the grandparents. Grandparents, I want you to know you got a phenomenal ministry. You're called to intercede for your grandkids. You're called to model for them, deposit the word of God for them, to contend and fight for their souls. And if you're a grandma or grandpa and you're cut off from them, you need to know this. You may be cut off from them physically, but nothing can stop you from praying for them. You need to see yourself as their chief intercessory officer. Keep praying for them because God hears the prayers of grandparents. How many thank God for that truth? Amen? Then this is the other side of the coin that we've lost in this generation, and that is we have devalued ministry to parents. What Paul says is that don't talk to me. Don't talk to me about winning the world and winning the nations and winning a generation until you are ministering to your family. You should consider it an honor to care for your parents. You should consider it a privilege to care for aging parents. And I know some of you might be looking at me and saying, Chris, you don't know my mom. She's a mess. You don't know my dad. He's a terrible person. But let me tell you what Paul is getting at here. Just as I teach my children, this is more about honoring the office than it is about honoring the person. We don't care for them because they are Christians. We care for them because we are Christians. We don't honor them because they lived honorable lives. We honor them because we want to live an honorable life before God. And when we serve our parents, God is pleased. Now, how many out there want the pleasure and the favor of God on your life? All right, that was a golf clap. Let me come over here. How many out there want the pleasure and favor of God on your life? There we go, right? Well, we need to do what pleases him, and what pleases him is when we care for our families. I was blessed. I was so blessed to be raised in a home in which my grandma, who was a widow, lived with us. My grandma was so integral in my faith. She taught me how to pray. She modeled godliness for us. She had us memorizing verses, sneaking us candy behind my parents' back if we memorized a verse, putting quarters in my hand so I could tithe in church. So many things she taught that I got from my grandma. And now I get the privilege of living in a multi-generational home my mother-in-law, who's a widow, lives with us, and she has for years. And it's a blessing. 
I will stand before you today and tell you that I am thoroughly convinced that I wouldn't be able to do a fraction of the ministry that I'm able to do because of her support for the family and what she models for our children and what she pours into them. They don't even realize how blessed they are right now, but the day will come when they will look back and say, like I say, praise God that grandma was there. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not trying to uh, just put on rose-colored glasses. I am saying that it's biblical and that God is pleased when we care for our family. He goes on, and he describes what a biblical widow looks like. She who is truly a widow, left left all alone. So the first identity marker is the obvious, that her spouse has passed away. And this would have left women, in particular in the first century, very, very vulnerable. This is why throughout the Old Testament and New, there are four special interest groups that uh, Israel is told to take care of and the church is told to take care of. The first special interest group, listen to this, are widows. The second special interest group are the fatherless or orphans. The third special interest group are the poor, and the fourth are foreigners. All four, the Bible tells Israel that they are commanded to have compassion and care for that carries over to the church. Not everything from the Old Testament carries over to the New, but these four groups carry over into the New Testament, and it's imposed upon us in Acts chapter 15, James chapter 1, and there are many other places as well where we're called to care for these four groups. It's as if the litmus test for us getting the gospel and modeling what it means to love God and love one another is seen in how we care for the most vulnerable among us. And so here we're told to care for these who are left all alone. And then the second characteristic of a true widow is she set her hope on God. Can I speak to the widows here today? I want to encourage you to hope in Jesus, to not let go of your hope. I know it's so hard to hold on to it. If you are here and you have lost a spouse, I mean, I've been married to my wife now for 25 years, and I think about so many have been married much longer. I think about, man, how would I function if she passed away? God forbid, what would I do? And so I can imagine how easy it is to give up your hope in God, to say, God, how could you let this happen? And where do I go from here? And what does my future look like? And to feel so, so afraid about the future. But let me just say what Paul just said, hope in God. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He has not turned his back on you. God is faithful. He goes on to say that this this type of widow continues in supplication and prayers night and day. She does not let go of her, her, her relationship with God. She stays connected to God. I want you to picture, those of you who know the birth story of Jesus, picture Anna who was in the temple. She is talked about as a woman who stayed in the temple night and day. She loved her family. She loved the church. And this is what widows are supposed to bring to the table. And this 
This is why in verse number three, Paul says we should place a high valuation on widows. If you are an older woman, in particular a widow in this church, I want you to know that your wisdom is needed. Your ministry is needed. You have high value for the church. The church can't make it depending on one generation or just two generations. We need every generation if we're going to live in the strength and the wisdom of God. And so, Paul then contrasts in the next verse. He contrasts what an unfaithful widow would look like. Uh, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This word self-indulgent, is, it means to give yourself over to wanton pleasure, to live for sexual desires. And he says that if that's what you've done, if you've let go of your hope in God and you instead have desire, decided to chase the God of pleasure, you've already died on the inside. The way that you live with hope is to trust in Jesus. And then he commands Timothy he goes on to say, command these things, verse number seven, as well, so that they may be without reproach. Notice that he goes from the individual widow to the they. Who are the, the they that should be without reproach? It's the family of the widow. And then he explains it this way, verse number eight, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, get this, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, some translations have the word infidel. Paul, with as harsh of a pen as you will ever find him with, says, not to provide for your family means that you're worse than an infidel. This means that you have denied the faith. Like, th this isn't even the faith that we're trying to model, a faith that abandons family, a faith that casts off the older generation, a faith that sees vulnerable people in your family and you don't care for them. If that is us, may we go back to the altar and say, God, do something in our hearts. Again, we don't have any place at all to talk about winning the nations if we're not caring for our families. You can't talk about winning a generation if we're not caring for our families. Paul says, go back home, care for your family because family ministry is your first ministry. Family ministry is a blessing. How many count it a blessing to care for your family? Amen? Now, I know for some of you, this is like tug of war. You're like, I didn't come here for this, right? That's not the message that I wanted to hear. I just want to let you know God knew you needed it. He knew I needed it. We need to be reminded of the importance of family ministry, and it pleases him when we do it. This also lays out an economic principle. I'm just going to say this as, as an aside. You can study it later. It's an economic principle known as subsidiarity, and what it really speaks of is that the most important unit or the best unit to care for a person when they're in need is the unit that is closest to them, the community that is closest to them, because they're able to discern what they really, really need. And so instead of us saying a person has a need, they're 
therefore let us create a government program, knowing that government is so detached from individual discernment that they can't discern what a person really needs, then what the Bible recommends is that the first group that should care for the person is the family. And if they don't have family, then the church who should know them really, really well. The government comes down the line. And I'm not saying there's not a place for certain big problems that may need government intervention, but there's a lot of government programs that are just simply replacing what family should be doing. The more we get away from the word of God, the more we get an upside down society, the more we get back to the word of God, families caring for people, churches caring for those without families, the more we will live in a God-honoring way and produce a society that can actually function to the glory of God. He goes on to say, he says, but if anyone, he, he already said in verse number nine. Now in verse number nine, he, he starts talking about a different group of widows. This group of widows are not just a group of women who don't have a husband, but there was a leadership group. New Testament scholars agree on this. There was a leadership group of older women that were widows that were asked to help to lead in the church to counterbalance the older men who were elders so that all could receive ministry. And he's talking about this group, and this is what you need to know in order to properly interpret these next few verses. Let a widow be enrolled. Enrolled in what? Enrolled in this leadership group only if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been uh, the wife of one husband. Let me just stop there. Not only does he put an age requirement on it, but again, he brings up marriage. And let me just say to everyone who's here, I want you to feel loved and I want you to know that I love you. But one thing that I have to do if I love you is whenever the word of God presents something, I have to faithfully present it to you. And throughout this study, I've received calls and emails, not a, a ton, but some, who say, why do you keep bringing up sex and sexuality? It's like you're targeting. I listen, I don't come looking to target any topic. Again, the way that I, I study the Bible, the way we study the Bible is through entire books. But when a subject comes up, we got to be faithful to it. And it's Paul who keeps bringing marriage up. And here he says that if a woman is going to serve in this leadership group, she had to have the proven track record of being a faithful wife. As he defines, as scripture defines, marriage as being between a man and a woman, one husband, one wife. That's not something that I impose upon the text based off of mere opinion. This is, this is how God gives us the text. And in his grace and in his love, he has called ministers like myself to teach you the truth. And sometimes the truth can feel offensive. But if you love someone, you will love them enough to offend them and to tell them a truth that will save their souls. At some point, you and I are going to have to decide, is the Bible sentimental or authoritative? Is it optional or is it binding upon us? When God gives his word to humanity, it does not come accompanied by a bottle of whiteout. We don't get to pick and choose which sections we want to adhere to. It's an all or nothing proposition. How many see the word of God as authoritative in your life? That means that if the Bible says it, that settles it, and I am obligated to it. He goes on to say, 
and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This is a type of woman that should be in that leadership group that has a ministry. And we're going to see what that ministry is in just a second. Literally going house to house, caring for people alongside of the elders. This is a type of woman that should be a part of that group. But can I say something real quickly as a parenthetical statement? How many thank God that we don't have to do nearly the amount of foot washing they had to do in the first century? Can I get an amen? Praise God. That's just my own praise report. Verse number 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when the, their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. So incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Listen, he's, he's not condemning marriage. If you're young and you are a widow and you desire to remarry, marriage is always esteemed in the Bible. Never is it vilified. What his condemnation is, is walking away from the faith, doing what it takes to get married, to get a spouse, even if it means compromising my commitments to Christ, signing up to serve, and then turning your back on it. That's the condemnation. It is never against marriage. But he goes on to talk about these widows that you need to watch out for. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. That was their ministry, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but gossips. Can you imagine all the information you would find out if you had a house-to-house ministry? But not just gossips, but busybodies saying what should not, what they should not. So I would have younger women, this is a summary statement, verse number 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. I know there's some cultural differences between first century and this current moment, but please see the broader principle. That if you're gonna be a model, a leader within the church, you have to have a life that's worthy of modeling. And I just want to pause for just a quick moment and say we are blessed to have these types of women in our church. I thank God for one of our largest, really the largest Sunday school group we got at this church called Faithful Friends. They meet every Sunday at 945 full of women that fit this description. I thank God for Debbie Crabb, who oversees our current widow's ministry, called From Morning to Joy. She is a woman who has blessed my heart, blessed our family. She models this. From the time her husband has passed away, her prayer has been, Lord, use me. And God has used her and blessed her and allowed her to be a blessing to many. You won't recognize this name. Most of you may not recognize the name Millie Benson, but Millie is faithful at our 815 uh, service. Her and her husband, Bruce, have been caring for this church. Their kids are serving in our kids' ministry. They are rock stars to me. But uh, Millie started our, our widow's ministry, and she just models what it means to be a godly woman, caring for her children, caring for her grandchildren, caring for her family. We are blessed to have a church full of women just like this, and we need to thank the Lord for that fact. One final verse, verse number 16, tells us that we should fulfill our responsibilities faithfully. He says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them 
Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. In other words, let's model what it is to care for family first. And then if there is no family, may the church step in and be um, what God has called us to be, to care for the widows, the fatherless, the foreigner, and the poor. But I will just close by saying this, and we're going to close in worship. You can stand with me. But I'm going to close by saying this, that this is not just a blessing for our souls, but this is evangelistic. Again, in a world that is so broken, with relationships so fractured, what a thirsty world is looking for is a place to call home, a community where there is family, and how many want us to be that community. Amen? Now, being a part of the family starts with you making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior so that you can know God as Father. And today you can know God as Father by trusting in Him. I want to pray for us, but if today you want to give your life to Jesus, there'll be leaders at the front and in the lobby. Please connect with us. And if you're online, just type the word connect and one of our team members will follow up with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today you're moving in our hearts, you're saving, you're reminding us that you're so good. Lord, today we worship you because you have proven yourself to be faithful. To you be the glory for the great things you have done. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we say amen and amen. Can we give God praise? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.